0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Farmers Capital Conversations, bringing you helpful strategies and practical resources to help you invest on and off the farm. If you find value today, don't hesitate to leave us an honest review and share the episode. Yes, this helps us, but more importantly, it could help someone else along their journey. Now let's dive in without further ado.
1: So I have um, the same feeling, you know, about efficient and effective use of property and looking at underutilized properties and how we can actually maximize the um, utilization of those so that we could solve problems like housing shortages. And so that's kind of the exciting thing about entitlements from looking at it from a higher level is that it allows you to employ a certain level of creativity to solve really serious issues a lot of times. And whether it be for farming or it be for housing or whatever it may be, there's a myriad of different problems out there as we know. And you can actually be a part of that solution by doing this kind of projects, you know, and I'm not advocating that you you know, leave your existing business if it's like flipping land or flipping houses or whatever, but look at these opportunities that are out there. Because while I was talking about big ones, there's small ones that are for existing houses, you know, like extra large lots that have a single family house on it. Can you subdivide it and put another house on there?
0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. Today we are guested with Mike Marshall from the Tolosa Property Group. With more than 15 years of experience in land use and development, Mike has been the brains behind a variety of forced appreciation projects, ranging from obtaining approval of subdivisions and office buildings to commercial changes of use and rezoning projects. Mike is the CEO of the Telosa Property Group, a company specializing in using hidden forced appreciation strategies to transform underutilized properties as a result, empowering owners to unlock the dormant potential that lies in their property. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Casey. Happy to be here. For sure. There was a lot in that intro I just gave, but (laughs) let's start with the basics, man. What is forced appreciation?
1: Right, so forced appreciation kind of would be the opposite or the cousin, I guess, of natural market appreciation. So market-wide appreciation is gonna kind of float all boats, right? So if you're in a market and you're experiencing a lot of job growth and things like this, the market starts to grow and everything starts to appreciate. We're all kind of familiar with that with our houses and everything. But forced appreciation is looking at it saying, regardless of what the natural appreciation is doing in that market, there are things that we can do to the property to actually force the appreciation of it. And so it kind of falls into two buckets. One would be like operational things that you can do, like you know, increasing the rent on the multifamily building, um, you know, maybe cutting down the expenses, you know, that you have on like the electric systems or whatever it is. So you have these operational things that you can do. Then there's more physical things that you could do to the property. And that's kind of the the realm that I operate in.
0: Okay. So let's dive into those physical physical attributes of the property?
1: Sure. So basically what it comes down to is we're looking at like underutilized property from one reason or another. It could be a situation where you have like a multifamily building that's there and they have like an acre or two off to the side that's just being unused. And you can turn that into like RV parking or boat storage or something like that. You could go to that realm, or you could just go at vacant land, and that's really more where we spend a lot of our time too, is like looking at vacant land and how we can actually improve it to maximize its value ultimately. And a lot of times that's just looking at, hey, what's the development potential of this site? And then what do we need to do to be able to get it there? Now we're not developers ourselves, what we do is we focus on the first part of the overall development process, and that's the entitlement process, so getting those government approvals. and so. The types of projects we were talking about would be like subdivisions, zone changes, site plan reviews, things like that, that are basically again getting the approval from the local government agency to
0: use or develop
1: the property in a specific way.
0: Mm-hmm. When you're looking at properties that are ideal for the work that you do at Telosa, or Telosa property group, mm-hmm. what does that process look like from your chair? in terms of
1: identifying which ones are, are adequate.
0: Yeah, because I imagine yeah. there is you know, some clients that are your dream client, like that's perfect property, it's underutilized, you can see the value in it right from the get-go, and then maybe there's other land that it doesn't make a lot of sense.
1: Sure, yeah. you know, I think one kind of clear delineation would be if you look at rural vacant land, and then you look at land that's like on the urban fringe or even into the inner urban core, so there's those two halves. And for rural vacant land, there's a lot of opportunity to add value with subdivisions. And that that's very true. But then after that, there's not a lot of things you can do to actually force the appreciation in a market, you know, like in a significant way. I mean, of course you can do things like, you know, clearing a road or, or do brush clearing. There's those things that are very legitimate, but in terms of making like big bumps, subdivisions are gonna be your best bet in those kind of situations. For us, we tend to look at areas that have zoning, you know, applied to it. And there's states like California that have zoning in the rural counties and they have zoning in the cities. But a lot of states are like Texas, where here it's like, you know, you'll have zoning in the cities, but you'll have no zoning out in the county. And so for us, we find more opportunity where there's actual zoning, which is kind of like the opposite of like what a lot of people that are um, in the land business, you know, they see zoning as a constraint or a restriction, and it certainly can be but it also presents a lot of opportunities. And so we look at areas primarily that have some sort of zoning that's applied to it. That said, we still do stuff that's out in the, the rural areas as well. But again, the, the plays that you have are kind of more limited to subdivisions more than anything else, which okay. isn't bad. You still do really well. So it's not to imply that it's, it's not.
0: Mm-hmm. So you, so there's two different buckets, the rural vacant and the urban fringe and urban core. And it sounds like the urban core and fringe, it already has a lot of the zoning laws applied to that land. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you spend most of your time.
1: Yeah, that's correct. You know, and so people will bring us, you know, um, things for due diligence or for projects that we manage or what have you. And there will be some that are in those rural areas, like I said, for but for most part, it's stuff that has zoning attached to it. So We're either rezoning property or we're looking at subdividing it. You know, so for example, we're working on one right now that we just got approved for the rezoning effort. It's for going from agricultural to multifamily, which is a pretty big jump zone change wise. In doing so, you're setting the groundwork for a 200 unit multifamily building as a result of that. And so that's something that's in a more urbanized area that has zoning that was attached to it. And the thing is, is that zoning is like this construct that's inefficient because government agencies don't respond to the market like that. They're they're looking more in like these 20, 30 year horizons, whereas developers and investors are looking in these like two to five year horizons. And so that kind of creates a little bit of a juxtaposition, but in mm. terms of the motives, but it also means that. It's an inefficient process, the zoning it is. And so basically, if you can find opportunities to change zoning to something that's more palatable for the market, then you could do really well.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So in that instance you just gave, that would probably be more of an urban fringe type of project where it was ag and now you're rezoning it into more of a commercial use.
1: Yeah, that would be more typical. In this particular case, it was awkward and a little bit weird because the ag zoning was in place, but it was still a pretty urbanized area. There was a big city park across the street and things like that. So, again, that was an example of just the regulations and the ownership of those properties. They just never went to request a zone change. And so it just stayed agricultural. And then over time, the area around it builds up. And then you have a situation where you could have gone to like single family, for example, maybe 20, 30 years ago. But now the density has increased and now it's more suitable for multifamily. And so that's where you do that kind of big bump.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some states like Oregon. I know that it's really difficult to change the zoning outside of agriculture, which one position on that, you know, there's two positions to everything in this world, Mm -hmm. depending on the topic. Yeah. Um, But one position is that it's not beneficial for the farmer because it limits their options and the land value is tied up in the lack of options Um, and then there's the other side of it well we need farmland we need a food supply and that's a conversation we definitely don't need to get into nor do i want (laughs) to Um, but if people are interested um you know a lot of farmers that are listening to this conversation Mm -hmm. you know they're thinking well They probably see it all around them, especially where I'm at in the Treasure Valley of Idaho. They see a lot of the developers coming in, paying top dollar for this land, developing it into either multifamily or single-family homes. And depending, I mean, no matter what your position, it's happening. Um, The dollars are there. and But here is Mike Marshall with the Loza Group saying, it doesn't always have to be bad. There's right. zoning laws. I mean, it, it's just a part of the market, right? It's um, something that we all have to deal with. And there's yeah. people like you that help, that work with the landowners to apply the correct zoning on that land for the next use of it.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So, I mean, you could have farmland or or something that's on the fringe, and it could be ag zoned, and you may want to like upzone it to like you know what. The- kind of like an RE zone, which would be like residential estate, which would be maybe like one or two acre lots or something like that. That would be kind of like a next logical bump up. But I'd also say too, like, that's one of the reasons why, like, you know, in urban planning and that profession, there's been over the last 20 plus years, there's this push towards infill development and increasing densities inside the urban core. And so looking for opportunities where you can maybe used to have like a single family home and now you could replace that with like a multifamily building or, or townhomes or something like that. And so you're increasing the density, but you're doing it in the appropriate locations. And so that's one thing that I really like too, is looking at these infill opportunities where you can actually go and do that, take a single family home and turn it into a multifamily or a townhome project. And yeah, there's issues and, and concerns on the other side of the equation, like you mentioned of that too, but if you compare that. With the notion of taking you know or, or kind of encouraging urban sprawl out into the agricultural areas, if you have to pick one, choose your evil, I guess I'd say I'd rather go with the infill lots a lot of times rather than trying to kind of encourage that sprawl
0: yeah i I agree with you there i was I just spent uh fifteen months in the Netherlands and I was living in this third floor condo essentially and at the bottom were all these um, shops and stuff and that is very typical for those areas because they have to manage the density, manage the population and um, yeah, just the, just the growth of that And but they also understand the relevance of keeping agriculture so I, I agree yeah. with you there. I think we need to utilize what we have first and the way to do that is the urban core the way to do that is through possible rezoning with mm-hmm. Um, you and the Telosa group. Um, So when you are doing this rezoning process, Mike, what does the typical process look like? Sure. So usually there's going
1: to be a, a two, two public hearings that are kind of the end of the road in the whole process. One of them is going to be before the planning commission. And then the other one is going to be before city council or the county board of supervisors. And so they're the ones that are making the final decision in terms of their proposal. Up until then, You're putting together a complete application package that's going to be maybe some exhibits and some justification as far as why you feel it's appropriate for the property to be rezoned. That gets submitted to the city or county staff. And then there's going to be a review period. And that review period differs based on where you're at. You know, some places like in California, it could easily be 12 months or longer, depending on what you're doing. And then there's some very rural places where I've seen it happen in two months, you know. So there's a big wide range. And then also in terms of application costs, there's a big wide range. I've seen like rezoning requests as cheap as free in one instance, or like maybe $700. But then I've seen zone changes in California be like 35, $40,000. Wow. So it's so very dependent on where you're at in terms of the process, the length, and you know, the fees that are associated to it.
0: Yeah, I was talking to a single family developer here locally and he was operating, I mean, just two counties away, they run so differently that one entitlement process took, I think, two months or something, and the other one took 12 months. And they were basically the same project.
1: Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time, unfortunately, you know, and sometimes there's site specific things that'll, you know, you need to overcome and that cause delays. But yeah, a lot of times you can take them side by side. And just because of the politics or the operational characteristics of that county or city, it delays it. And so then what you'll have is you'll have developers that'll prefer to work with one jurisdiction or another. And if they're on the border of those jurisdictions, so if I'm like in the county, but I'm right next to the city, sometimes they'll want to annex that property into the city because it's more beneficial for whatever reason, or sometimes they want to stay out too. And so it does cause an issue sometimes.
0: Yeah, it does. Speaking about, um, geographies, what states do you mostly work in? We have
1: stuff kind of all around right now. Honestly, we have stuff in California, Texas, Florida, the Carolinas, but all in all, like probably in terms of like simplicity, if you're sticking to like the Southern states, there's a lot more, you know, general consistency as far as the simplicity of the process. Um, But also too, the more rural you are, sometimes it's a little bit easier, but there is a point where you get too small and it's like, they're just not familiar with the processes because they've only had like one subdivision request in the last 10 years, something like that. So you have that side of the equation too. Um, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on where you land on like the political scale of everything and you look at red states versus blue states, if you're making a very broad generalization, red states probably tend to be a little bit easier um, just because the land use controls are a little bit looser you know, than in other places. And all the places that you would imagine are more difficult are going to be, you know, California, the Pacific Northwest is going to be harder. New York is going to be harder. You know, Florida is easier. Texas is easier. The southern states are easier. These are generalities. And as a result, that's kind of where we do a lot of our work, just because that's where there's the path of least resistance. But... You know, those other states that I mentioned, you know, that are a little bit harder, the reality is that you know how to get through those and you're going to be better off too because you're cutting out the competition as a result. So if you can make it work in California or New York, you know, you can, you can make it happen pretty much anywhere. You know, I spent so much of my time in California and I'm constantly surprised at how simple the process can be in a lot of places,
0: comparatively. And does that vary depending on if you're in like Carlsbad versus San Francisco?
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. So like, if you're looking at just say California, you know, the coastal areas are going to be harder. So, you know, San Francisco, LA, San Diego, those are all going to be harder to go through. If you're interior in like the Inland Empire, places like, you know, Riverside and in like um, east of San Diego, anything that's kind of between the coastal range and like the border of like Arizona and Nevada, those places are going to be, you know, a lot easier. If you're been in California at all, you know, you kind of start to realize that there's, you know, two or three types of California, you know. And um and you can kind of play it out and and it's true, some of those interior areas certainly are easier, but I will say this too is that a lot of states including California are governed by statewide regulations that they can't vary from at the local level regardless of what their opinions would be.
0: Mhm. Yeah, so it's kind of like federally mandated versus state mandated.
1: Right. Exactly. That's exactly it.
0: Big Daddy's got to tell us what to do in some regard.
1: Right. So like the environmental regulations in California are notoriously difficult to deal with and long and lengthy, you know, and in other places, it's completely the opposite. I think the thing is with that is that the intentions were always good at the beginning, but it's always the implementation that ends up messing things up.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of why you see a lot of people... Just general business nowadays it's the same where it's like give away all the secrets, but sell the implementation and the execution because that's where the money is made, and it's kind of the same with what you're doing with Tolosa group it's yep. you can give away all the secrets, but the fact is like you guys exist for a reason because you guys can manage that execution of the process,
1: yeah, that's exactly it, you know, and the way that I tell people is like, hey, you're an expert at what you're an expert at, and same with myself you know, I'm not like a, a marketing guru, for example, by any stretch of the imagination, but there are people that I work with that certainly are. And so it's kind of thing of like putting together the right team again, you know, and, and kind of in a situation where I don't necessarily need to be the marketing you know, person if there's people that I work with that are and vice versa. So it tends to, tends to be symbiotic at a certain point.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking about relationships being symbiotic and really just aligned, you know, we had a conversation, I don't know, I think it was about a year ago and Mm -hmm. I was a fan of how you aligned the Telosa group compensation structure with Mm -hmm. the overall business plan. Can you walk us through how that works exactly or just generally?
1: Yeah. So for people that want to help or want us to help them with the project management side of it, you know, we're basically, the intermediary or liaison between ownership and the engineers, architects, the city, the county, everybody that's involved in the actual processing of the request. And so we're there to make sure that everything is streamlined. We're saving, you know, as much time as possible, as much money as possible, and then making sure that those other professionals are doing the things that they need to do to ensure that we're going to get an approval. And so that's our role in the process. And in what, basically in terms of our fee structure, we try to make it so that way it's, you know, we have some skin in the game and that we're also not going to benefit if you don't benefit. So for example, you know, we do have a engagement fee at the beginning of, of getting us working with you, but that engagement fee is ultimately credited to you on the back end. And the way that it really works, it's like 6% of the sales price. If you're, if you're going to be flipping it, 6% of that final sales price is what our fee is minus the, um, minus the upfront engagement fee. And so, in that sense, what it does is it basically allows you to use our services at a very low cost and and not have to worry about that. And then we only get compensated really if the project actually comes through to full fruition.
0: Yeah. And that's what I love about it. It's very similar to how our real estate deals are structured. When we provide preferred returns to our investors, that means that they could get six to 8% on their money before the general partners in the deal get paid a dime. And I've just been always been a huge fan of that because yeah. it incentivizes everyone to do the things that they're supposed to be doing.
1: Exactly. That's a, that's another big reason for it. And so far it's worked out really well because the alternative is is that, you know, at least within the industry would be like charging on an hourly basis, I think. And that's very 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 common, but it kind of creates problems because now it's like, "And where's your incentive?" you know, and That's almost like kind of engineers and professional services charge in the same way. And so they get paid essentially to create exhibits and papers and stuff like that, but they're not really incentivized to actually see that it goes through. And so that's what I tried to change up.
0: That is a huge, I don't know if irk is the right word to use, um, but I read this book recently and it really opened my eyes up to where like an hourly rate is actually pretty unethical when you think about it, because it it makes the contractor or whoever you're working with stretch the time out on any given project to where it's actually just beneficial for them. It's not really beneficial for the investor or just the owner of the land or, you know, the mm-hmm. project owner, et cetera. Um, and so when I've read that book, I was like, it's so right. And that's why people who move fast and move accurately should get, paid for their time but Mm -hmm. they should get compensated for if they execute in a timely fashion that's actually better for everyone involved because that means your velocity of money or the velocity of the project is moving at a much higher pace and that is what where the value was created in the long term
1: right exactly um there's that guy that he has um He's more of an ad agency guy and he's on facebook or not facebook but on youtube a lot what was it called the future or future something like that and he talks about pricing psychology a lot of times and it's all geared towards like basically value-based pricing <laughs> rather yeah. than hourly you know and it's that's so true because if you're paying somebody hourly and you're really good that means you're going to be fast and so now that that professional gets punished for actually being good and so that's like a, a downside of the for them from their perspective and then again too hourly, again, from the client's perspective is that you're always wondering, are you getting charged the right rate? Are you really getting charged the correct number of hours? Does it make sense, as opposed to having like, you know, an actual benchmark or an actual result
0: being the motivation? Mm hmm. Yeah, the book that I was referring to is value based fees by Alan Weiss. I'm oh, okay. not sure if that's who, Um, but very, very interesting book. I mean, even if you're not in the consulting world, or if you're I mean, I think everyone can value from, from that book because it, it unbuckles us from the per hour rate. Like our whole, it seems like the entire society is kind of operating on this like per hour, you know, upwork.com or, mm-hmm. you know, 99% of jobs out there like that. But anyway, that is besides the point outside <laughs> of yeah. land, land entitlement. Right. <laughs> so Mike, so, what's the, what's a process? Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say like what's the the process if someone were to say I'm interested or maybe they are interested in an urban core as you called it earlier they want to turn a single family into a a duplex or a triplex um what what are some next logical steps for them and then what what can they expect from you and the team
1: Yeah so like the next step with with us is really having a set of due diligence steps being accomplished and so what we help people with is we help them with that exact process. And there's a couple of ways that we do that, but one of them may just be with somebody setting up an hourly consulting call with us, you know, and what happens there is they'll send us information ahead of time. We'll do some research and everything. So that way we have meaningful feedback to give them during that call, but we're basically trying to accomplish the big, you know, ticket red items that could be problematic. So we're trying to identify red flags essentially. And so we'll help them do that from our perspective, give them everything that we can, help guide them in terms of what we see, what they need to look for in terms of additional due diligence. And then what we tell them is that, you know, when we get involved is once they have like a pre-application meeting with the city or the county where the city will give them feedback, then I'll meet with them again. We'll go over those findings that the city provided to them. And if we feel collectively that, hey, there's enough good here for us to move forward, then we'll engage in our, our project management agreement.
0: Okay, so you you wait until they've engaged with city council, and then you reconvene to see if it will be worthwhile. So is there? Yeah, a reason? it's usually just with yeah. it's
1: usually just with city staff, so it's not necessarily with okay. the city council. Um, and we could do it a couple of different ways. That's typically how we'll do it. We'll say, "Hey, go have that meeting, come back, and then we'll regroup." But from time to time, if the the client wants, they want us to be a part of that meeting, which makes sense a lot of times. We'll certainly go ahead and be a part of that meeting, so that way we could facilitate it, ask the right questions, ask the right follow-up questions, which is sometimes even more important. And so we'll f- help facilitate that too.
0: Yeah, that would that was another question of mine. I feel like it would be very beneficial for you, especially if you have gone through those due diligence steps, you're familiar with the vision of the property, you understand some of the nuances, and then you can ask the questions to the city staff, perhaps in those meetings that um, will just come off better because you've been doing this for a long time. Right. So you know how to phrase these questions right. to get the ball moving forward. I, I would imagine. I've never gone yeah. through the process. so Yeah, yeah.
1: And that's absolutely it. I think one of the things that happens if you walk into that meeting, number one, there's oftentimes a lot of different people from different disciplines that are sitting at the table. And that could be intimidating to people. And then you go on top of it. They don't really know what questions to ask or they accept kind of had half answers as being the absolute truth. And the reality is, is you need to like verify, get information, get something in writing that really, you know, verifies what they're stating sometimes. So there's all these little nuances and tricks that you really have to be aware of to get the most out of those meetings. And if uh, you don't have somebody on your team to help you, then that's problematic. So like, that's where we come in a lot of times, but it's also too, where even like a civil engineer may do that for people as well. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's a good point that you make. It can be pretty intimidating when you're looking at all of these different people, all of these professions, and they're asking questions with words that probably are not common enough for like, we don't deal with zoning and city laws and all that. And so it's definitely could be beneficial to get someone who's in the day to day to understand all of those nuances. So, yeah,
1: absolutely. And the other thing I'd say too, is that even if you don't have the intention of, doing the entitlements or any development work or anything like that, I think it's important to understand and know those things to know what the potential of the site is, because if nothing else, you want to be able to utilize that information in your marketing, when you're reaching out to potential buyers when you're communicating with agents and everything like that to help communicate that there is other value to this property above and beyond just looking at it for what you see physically on the ground right now. And so I think that's a place where a lot of people do miss out is because they're going to look at just comps. And sometimes those comps will help you, but sometimes not because really vacant land for development purposes is really valued based on the potential development of the site and not just like acreage comps. So it's a different type of valuation.
0: Okay. And so can you double click into that a little bit for us? Cause that's, that's a good point you bring up.
1: Yeah. I mean, the basic idea is, is that if you look at like one acre lot, you know, in any area, and you're just comparing it based on acreage, and you're looking at it as like a recreational lot, you're gonna have one set of comps that are gonna be associated to that. But if you can do something more with that lot, and let's say, for example, let's say it's even 100 acres. If you're looking at it as a 100 acre recreational tract, well, that's gonna have a certain value to it, and that's great. But if that 100 acres can be turned into a residential development, then at that point you're looking at, well, what's the future value of the project once it's all said and done? So on 100 acres, let's just say you're getting 100 lots on there, and each house, when it's all said and done, would cost like $300,000. So 300,000 times 100 lots, that gives you your total project valuation. And then from there, you're backing out your construction costs, the profit to the developer, profit to the builder, and then you're going to get your basically your paper lot value. Well, that's where you're creating a lot of your value is by getting that approval in place. And so you can miss a lot of value if you're basing it based on comps like for recreational land as opposed to it being something like for like housing. Now, the thing is is that if you're not gonna do the subdivision, you're not gonna do the entitlement work, you're probably not gonna capture a lot or much of that value because you're just telling somebody, hey, there's this potential here as opposed to setting the stage for that person, another developer to come in and do that work. So that's why, entitlements are so valuable is because you're number one, you're moving that, that ball down the field a little bit more, but you're also adding certainty into the picture where there otherwise wasn't certainty. And that's why you're adding value. That's why entitlements can be so valuable. They can make that huge bump because you're changing the potential use of the property in this case, from like a recreational piece of land to a residential development.
0: hmm I think that's a huge next step for people to take away here today. It's like, you don't have to necessarily do all of the horizontal for the subdivision to be laid out. You can simply go through and go through the process that Mike is talking about and create the vision for the next seller. And maybe it's a subdivision, maybe it's a multifamily apartment in this urban core, urban fringe area. Um, But just that next step can really add the value to the land instead of being you know comped at that recreational i like to figure like this is why i moved out of residential because residential mm-hmm. houses are usually use sales comps right so yeah. whatever the house next door sold at that's they use that as the price or a sales comp for your house mm-hmm. um and that's the a similar process for the residential or or the the rec recreational land that you were talking about. But when you go yeah. through this process, it's easier for them to see um, for the for the next person.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I don't want to, I shouldn't be careful not to like paint it as though it's all roses because it certainly isn't, you know, like the biggest, the biggest issues that people tend to have, I think when they're getting into the entitlement space is that they come from wherever piece of real estate they come from before, you know, whether it be houses, land, whatever they're doing, they're either flipping or they're you know wholesaling whatever they have in their business they're able to move really quick, um, and entitlement work doesn't move quick. You know it, it's definitely a lengthy process. You know in most instances, um, there are certain types of entitlements that'll move faster than others in general, but it is a time consuming process. But the upside is is that the payoffs are that much bigger too. So it's always like this balancing act that you're doing. And the other thing that's probably you know problematic for a lot of people is that. Sometimes with entitlements, you have to spend money on some due diligence to be able to even determine if there's actual potential for that site. And so you're putting money and dollars into these studies or these analysis or whatever happens to be just to be able to answer the question as to whether or not I can develop it in the fashion that I'm looking to develop it. So, for example, one thing would be like, you know, when we look at utilities, we tend to think, well, if the utilities are at the street right in front of the property, then everything's great. But it's not just about the location of those utility lines, it's about the capacity of those utility lines and the whole infrastructure. And so if the infrastructure is not set up for your additional 100 houses, then you either have to go and upgrade the infrastructure, or you have to bring down your unit count to something that's actually manageable by the infrastructure that's already in place. That can kill the deal if you're already under contract at a certain price, if you have to bring down the unit count. And it can also kill the deal if you're looking at a whole lot of money to upgrade the system too. So that's just one example of these like nuances that you have to be aware of. And like I said, sometimes you have to pay money to be able to answer the question. And the way that, you know, most developers work, and this is a, same true with a lot of businesses, is that, you know, they're going to swing at the bat, you know, 10 times and they know that they're going to fail a certain number of times. And the other ones are going to actually be really successful. And that's just part of the business. And it all washes out to be positive in the end. And that's kind of the attitude that you have to have. Now, I'm not saying you're going to fail at it like three times out of 10, but out of 10 tries, you're, you're likely not going to like, you're likely going to be putting money into something that doesn't, you know, pan out. But the goal of that too is to do that during, before, or during your due diligence period so you're not wrapped up in it and committed.
0: Mm-hmm. And you've gone through that entitlement process. Like, and as we mentioned earlier, that could be as quick as two weeks or it could be, As slow as who knows, 12 months, two years. Right. It's all very subjective to the local city officials.
1: Yeah. And the complexity of where you're at, you know, and what's involved, you know. So you could be looking at a multifamily development, and now where there was like a house, now you have 30 units or something like that. Well, that's a lot more additional traffic trips that are coming and going. So now you need a traffic study. That traffic study is going to identify whether there's any mitigation that needs to be done. That mitigation could be as simple as like a stop sign and some striping, but it could also be as complicated as a traffic signal. A traffic signal may cost you two to $300,000 just to put in one signal. So it's things like that, that like, yeah, when you look at the top level of the regulations, like I should be able to be allowed to have X number of units but there's certain extenuating factors that can limit the actual size and scope of the project based on the impacts that are going to be anticipated as a result.
0: hmm Yeah, good points, Mike. Yeah. This has been super valuable. I didn't know a lot about entitlement. I still don't, let's be <laughs> honest here. Um, the basics, but that's yeah. why we have people like Mike Marshall to really help us and guide us through this process. But for anyone out there even interested in figuring out what the entitlement process looks, how it can potentially add value to your land that could just be a bunch of dirt and rocks out there right now and not being used for anything. Or if you have these urban infill lots, you know, there's could be a lot there. And I think also a point for folks to think about is the long-term vision, not only for their own pocketbook, but for the long-term of the community that they're in. You know, in my a lot of places around the world, there's housing shortages, there's people having probably too much land that could probably land could be split up, be used for more housing. And I think just better utilization of our land is something that uh, I am a very big proponent of and something that I think we need to do more of. But that's just my my opinion. Um, Mike, is there one thing you'd like to leave us with today?
1: I just want to echo your point, though, too, about, you know, efficient use of land. You know, I I think that's straying into the world of like urban planning and things like that. And I think that's just obviously that's my background. And so I have um, the same feeling, you know, about efficient and effective use of property and looking at underutilized properties and how we can actually maximize the um, utilization of those so that we could solve problems like housing shortages. And so that's kind of the exciting thing about entitlements from looking at it from a higher level is that it allows you to employ a certain level of creativity to solve really serious issues a lot of times. And whether it be for farming or be for housing or whatever it may be, there's a myriad of different problems out there as we know, and you can actually be a part of that solution by doing this kind of projects, you know? And I'm not advocating that you you know, leave your existing business if it's like flipping land or flipping houses or whatever. But look at these opportunities that are out there, because while I was talking about big ones, there's small ones that are for existing houses, you know, like extra large lots that have a single family house on it. Can you subdivide it and put another house on there? Something like that, you know, so there's a lot of opportunity that's out there. And I just say, you know, if anybody has questions on any piece of property, whether it's rural or infill or what have you, can certainly reach out to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Where can people find you, Mike?
1: Yeah, you know, um, the best way is probably just to send me an email, but our website is telosa, Tolosa, T O L O S A, propertygroup.com. And so my email address is Mike at telosapropertygroup.com. Or if you're on Facebook, we just have a um, group there and it's called Forced Appreciation Strategies.
0: Awesome. We will link those in the show notes as well. Mike, thanks Thank you. so much for coming on, man. We appreciate it. You got it, Casey. Thank you, man. Absolutely. To all the listeners out there, hope you found some valuable insights into today's episodes um, recommend Mike services he's always been um, very quick to email me back and although full disclosure I've never worked with him but I do <laughs> I am a proponent um, yeah. so feel free to reach out all right see you everyone